When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Having thus imparted to you my sentiments, as they have been awakened by the occasion which brings us together, I shall take my present leave, but not without resorting once more to the benign parent of the human race, in humble supplication that, since he has been pleased to favor the American people with opportunities for deliberate and perfect tranquility, and dispositions for deciding with unparalleled unanimity on a form of government for the security of their union and the advancement of their happiness, so his divine blessing may be equally conspicuous in the enlarged views, the temperate consultations, and the wise measures on which the success of this government must depend. With those words, George Washington assumed office as the first President of the United States on April 30, 1789, at Federal Hall in New York City. Welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Now, most histories I've seen of this time period tend to approach the beginning of Washington's presidency as if the cabinet just popped up and he got straight to work. But I intend in this episode to discuss the early days of the Washington presidency as a time of uncertainty, as his approach to the beginning of his administration is, to me, one of Washington's greatest legacies. I think it's easy for people of the modern era to forget just how unique our form of government is in human history. In a time that we're surrounded by republics around the globe, in name if not in practice, and after 228 years of our government under the Constitution, it seems that, of course, everything would fall into place. But this was not certain when Washington took office. Indeed, at this point, North Carolina and Rhode Island still hadn't ratified the Constitution and were thus, for all intents and purposes, foreign nations. Washington's inaugural made him the second member of the executive branch, as John Adams had been inaugurated as vice president on April 21st, though it still wasn't even really clear that the vice presidency wasn't more a part of the legislative branch due to his role as president of the Senate. They had some leftovers from the government under the Articles of Confederation that were still operating, including John Jay as Secretary of Foreign Affairs and Henry Knox as Secretary of War. But there would have to be decisions made as to the structure of the executive branch, as the Constitution didn't really provide much guidance. First and foremost, though, they had to figure out how in the heck to address the president. Indeed, though there had been talk of it prior to, the formal debate in Congress had begun on April 23rd, and a decision had still not been reached by the inauguration. To us in the 21st century, this may seem a frivolous thing to focus on. I can imagine people of the modern day saying to call him dippity Doodah or Prezi McPresface and move on to issues of taxes or trade or national defense. But in an age where titles were important, even in everyday life, this was a big deal for them. Titles designated a person's social status, and thus someone was seen as moving up in the world by how they were referred to in society. The new government and its new offices, on their own, had no position to speak of, as they were new. Washington himself lent a gravitas to the presidency. Indeed, he was already referred to either as Excellency or General. 
But the members of the First Congress saw the importance of establishing an air of respect and dignity, of presence, to the office that would remain when the day came that Washington wasn't in the seat of power. Just how much authority it should have, though, was up for debate. The debate would also highlight the differences between the more grassroots House of Representatives and the more aristocratic Senate, with the Senate proposing the title of, quote, His Highness the President of the United States of America and Protector of Their Liberties. Try saying that one three times fast. While the House would ultimately win out with the President just being called the President, Mr. President, if you're happy. The debate would also serve as the litmus test for Washington to determine his advisors that he would draw close from those who belonged in a further orbit. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. John Adams would be one of those who would find himself shut out early on in the administration. Adams suffered public criticism for his attempts to direct the Senate during the debate and his more lofty proposals for a presidential title. He was ridiculed as, quote, his rotundacy, and made the subject of a critical poem entitled The Dangerous Vice, followed by nine dashes, to symbolize president. Drawing Adams close would threaten Washington's image as a humble, modest man, and thus Adams would be the first of a long line of vice presidents that, until the latter part of the 20th century, for the most part found themselves shut out of administration affairs. Instead, Washington would turn to Jay and Knox in an official capacity, and, in an unofficial capacity, to Representative James Madison and his former aide-de-camp, Alexander Hamilton, in order to determine how he should approach his new office. At a time where the American public is discussing which precedents our 45th president is following and which he is not, and what that means for the nation, it is difficult for us to conceive of a time where none of these precedents existed, and the chief executive was making up every step as he went along. However, there was no guidebook for Washington. One of the first actions he did upon taking office was to send out an inquiry to his various advisors to ask them their thoughts on the protocol towards the general public, as well as other government officials, that he should implement to keep a balance between, quote, too free an intercourse and too much familiarity, and, quote, an ostentatious show. It was decided that, quote, dinners were to be held every Thursday at four, the guests being only government officials and their families, invited in an orderly system of rotation to avoid charges of favoritism. As to the general public, Washington established two occasions a week for greeting them, a levy for men only on Tuesday from 3 to 4, and tea parties for men and women held on Friday evenings. Anyone respectably dressed could attend either public function without invitation or prior notice, but at least the traffic was reduced. While viewed by his later critics as being too much of a royal heir, these protocols kept Washington from being mobbed by the public, as we shall see occur with later precedents with a more open-door policy. Instead of constantly having to deal with well-wishers or office-seekers, Washington could turn to the business of government, and there was much business to be had. At this point, the man running the agenda of the government was James Madison. Madison had been the guiding hand in writing Washington's inaugural address, the response to the inaugural address from the House of Representatives, and Washington's reply to the House's response. Now that things were up and running, 
It was up to him to guide through Congress the one stipulation that had come up time and again in the process of ratifying the Constitution, namely, that it needed a Bill of Rights. Madison would turn to Washington to lend his support to the project, and Washington would deliver with a letter in late May where he wrote that some of the amendments, quote, are importantly necessary, while others would, quote, quiet the fears of some respectable characters and well-meaning men. Upon the whole, therefore, they have my wishes for a favorable reception in both houses of Congress. It would take until September for the Bill of Rights to be finalized, then until December 15, 1791, before they were adopted. But the addition of the Bill of Rights to the Constitution stands as one of the greatest achievements of the first Congress and one of the early legislative victories of the fledgling Washington administration. Though in general, Washington enjoyed good relations with Congress in the early days of the New Republic, he did suffer from some ruffled feathers during his first attempt to seek the advice and consent of the Senate with regards to treaties and appointments. In the present day, it's taken without question that this means that the president would send either a notification of his nomination of a person for a certain post or a copy of a treaty that administration officials negotiated with a foreign power to the Senate, and they would look it over, debate, and take a vote on whether to approve or deny, without the president necessarily having to talk with any senators about it. However, in the early days of the constitutional government, it really wasn't clear what this seeking advice and consent meant. What did the president have to do to seek it? Washington's initial thought was that he had to head over to where Congress was meeting in Federal Hall and talk to them in person. Thus, when his nomination of Benjamin Fishbourne as collector of the Port of Savannah was rejected by the Senate, he headed on over unexpectedly and asked for an explanation as to why Fishbourne had been rejected. He was answered by Senator James Gunn of Georgia, who had torpedoed the nomination, but Gunn also made a point of it being known that he didn't feel the Senate had to explain its rejection of a president's nominee to any office. Washington did not like that one bit, but he took his lumps and moved forward, trying at the moment to keep the peace and goodwill going. His patience would be sorely tempted in his next advice and consent situation. He and Secretary of War Knox headed over to Federal Hall on August 22nd to seek advice and consent on a treaty negotiated with the Creek Native Americans. They had let the Senate know beforehand that they were headed over. As Washington sat, Adams would attempt to read the treaty aloud, article by article, but he first had senators complain that they hadn't heard what he was saying for street traffic outside. Then there was a motion put forward that it be recommended to a committee. Washington immediately objected that, quote, this defeats every purpose of my coming here. But the Senate started deliberating on whether it should be referred to a committee. As was seen in his tenure in the Virginia House of Burgesses, Washington had little patience for the deliberations of the legislative process, and this experience taught him that, from now on, he would submit his nominations and treaties and paper for the Senate's yay or nay. Don't call Washington. His people will call you if he wants your advice, Senate. Only a few months into the job, Washington was already feeling the pressure, but was still soliciting opinions from friends and associates. As noted in his letter of July 26 to David Stewart, quote, Although my time had been, and probably now will be, much engaged, yet your communications, without any reserve, will be exceedingly grateful and pleasing to me. While the eyes of America, perhaps of the world, are turned to this government, and many are watching the movements of all those who are concerned in its administration, I should like to be informed through so good a medium of the public opinion of both men and measures, and of none more than myself, not so much of what may be thought the commendable parts, if any, of my conduct, as of those which are conceived to be blemishes. 
Washington at that time had reason to worry about blemishes upon his person, as, just a little over a month prior, quote, a fast-growing tumor appeared on his left thigh, causing him to run a fever and suffer from unbearable pain while sitting. He called for a doctor who pronounced it to be, quote, the cutaneous form of anthrax. Chernow notes that he felt it was likely, quote, a carbuncle or soft tissue infection. His secretary, Tobias Lear, had servants cordon off the street in front of the presidential mansion on Cherry Street, and servants sprinkled straw in front of the house, quote, to deaden passing footsteps. Worries began to grow in official and social circles that the nation's first president wouldn't make it through his first year. However, after an operation on his thigh on June 17th and a lengthy convalescence, Washington did finally recover. While recovering from his illness, his door was darkened again by personal tragedy. His mother, Mary Ball Washington, had been fighting breast cancer for some time. Prior to assuming his new office, he had visited with his mother and, quote, the last act of personal duty I am ever to have it in my power to pay my mother. She passed away on August 25, 1789, and, upon learning of her death, Washington and his household went into an official period of mourning, while the members of the government also, quote, wore black crepe on their arms and black ribbons and necklaces became de rigueur for ladies. Official New York went into mourning for a woman whom they had never seen and who had shown scant interest in the new government. The formal levies were canceled for three weeks. Soon the capital resumed its normal social rhythm, but Washington wore badges of mourning for at least five months. Despite this, by September he was writing to his friend James Craig that, quote, the want of regular exercise, with the cares of office, will, I have no doubt, hasten my departure for that country from whence no traveler returns. But a faithful discharge of whatever trust I accept, as it ever has, so it always will be the primary consideration in every transaction of my life, be the consequences what they may. Washington was committed to carrying out his official duties as the government was still in need of construction. Besides organizing the executive branch, Washington was also responsible for filling all the positions of the federal judiciary. That is, of course, once Congress got done figuring out the structure of the judiciary. While the Constitution did establish that there was a federal judiciary, it didn't provide much guidance about what that would look like. Congress worked through the summer, and finally in September passed the Judiciary Act of 1789, which, quote, was thought by many to be a sound but temporary compromise. Yet, thanks to a combination of astute political foresight, hard work, and luck, most of the important features of the national judiciary established by the Act are with us today. It was this Act that established the system of district courts, circuit courts, and a six-member Supreme Court, with one justice serving as the chief justice, while the other five would be associate justices. The debate over the Judiciary Act gave Washington time to ponder who might be good candidates for whatever post came out in the final bill. He wrote to Madison that he was looking for, quote, the first characters of the Union to fill the Judiciary Post. To fill the seats of the first Supreme Court, Washington sought a geographic balance and appointed William Cushing of Massachusetts, James Wilson of Philadelphia, John Blair of Virginia, James Iredale of North Carolina, and John Rutledge of South Carolina as associate justices. To serve as the first chief justice of the court, Washington turned to a man who had been a trusted advisor during his first few months in office, John Jay of New York. Jay's appointment as chief justice would, constitutionally, move him out of the executive branch into the judicial at a time when Congress was finally starting to craft its main department. 
The Department of Foreign Affairs, soon to be renamed the State Department, was created on July 27th, while the Department of War was established on August 7th, followed by the Treasury Department on August 28th. Next time, we'll get into more detail about the men that Washington chose to head those departments and form his first cabinet. But in the meantime, I wanted to invite you as you're listening, should you come up with any questions, whether it's something that I didn't discuss or something that you'd like to know about in more detail, please send them on to me via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Though it's still a ways off, I'm collecting questions for a listener questions episode at the end of our Washington series, and I'd love to be able to share your questions, as well as the answers, with everyone. Sources used in this episode, as well as past episodes and supplemental materials, can be found on the blog at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, and past episodes are also available on iTunes and Stitcher if you're not listening from there already. As always, thank you so much for listening, and take care. Until next time, friends. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.